are progressing through the first book of the Bible. We've been doing this for some time now, and we come now to the third declaration of the covenant God makes with Abraham. Every time it gets a little better. Uh, the first meeting is shorter, it's sweet, it says a lot of wonderful prophetic things about what God will do through Abram. Then we get to Genesis 15, and he has a ceremony, a very vivid ceremony where he cuts animals in half, and God himself alone walks through them to symbolize he's the one who makes the covenant, he's the one who keeps the covenant. That's grace, God doing what we cannot do for ourselves, uh, the covenant of grace. In fact, if you're a new student of the Bible, the quickest way to get up to speed on what the story of the Bible is, is trace the covenants. When God makes a covenant, the detail around that will tell you what he's up to next in bringing Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, the blood of my new covenant, of the new covenant, Jesus says, he fulfills it all. It's, it's a simple but profound progression that happens. And we're at the beginning of this where he's been revealing himself now narrowly to Abram, who will become Abraham in our passage. Uh, at this point, though, years have gone by. We're seeing it pretty quickly, but Abraham and Sarah are living with many years between God speaking to them about what's coming next. So we have to give them patience with some of the responses as they're up and they're down in their faith. They're two steps forward, one step back. But God continues moving through to redeem a people for himself by bringing Messiah, starting with Abraham here as he promises to bring Isaac eventually. We're almost to Isaac. It's, it seems like it's been so long to build to this point. Abram and Sarah have been through so much. And here we come to Genesis 17, the third and final, uh, you might say, official pronouncement of the Abrahamic covenant. This one, God uh, gives him a responsibility. Uh, God's saying, I'm showing you all this grace, and I want you to walk with me. I want you to walk with me and be blameless before me, Abram. Uh, I've shown you this grace. Respond by showing that you grasp this. So here as I read God's word, this is Genesis 17. This week I'll read the first 14 verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray together. Father, your word is truth, so sanctify us by it. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please give us understanding that we might apply your word to our lives. Lord, by your spirit, may you overcome those many weaknesses that come from the one who speaks. Please sanctify your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been watching lots of ups and downs here in the life of Abram and Sarai. If you want to think about it in terms of a chronology, back in Genesis 12, when we first met Abram, he was 75 years old. 75 years old. He lived, even in those days, that was, that was getting into old age. Uh, and he, he lived quite a life already in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, had amassed quite a bit of material wealth already at that moment. And in Genesis 12, at age 75, God says, go from your country. Leave this place, leave your kindred, and leave your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. And the work of faith shows itself first in Abram here as he obeys God and he goes to the promised land. God says, I will make you a great nation. He's 75, he has no children yet. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So not only will I give you children, I'm going to give you a great nation that comes from you. I'm going to give you all sorts of stuff, and you'll be a blessing to the nations. And he goes at age 75. Now, three years later, he's 78, about three years later. In Genesis 15, this is the second time he speaks very clearly to Abraham about the covenant that he is making with him. He says, fear not, I'm with you, Abraham. You shall have your very own son with Sarai. He's still wondering, I'm 78, no children yet. She's 10 years younger, she's 68. How is this possible? But God says your offspring will number like the stars number. God carried out a covenant ceremony, that vivid ceremony I just mentioned earlier. This bloody rite and ritual that God takes all, all the weight of it and all the responsibility about ratifying it and fulfilling it upon himself. And he promises with that vivid ceremony to Abram that he will give him a child. Well, that's at age 78. Then at Genesis 16, the passage we just studied a few weeks ago, at age 86, eight years after the ceremony, Sarai gets impatient, insecure, anxious. Abram follows suit in his leadership, and he takes Hagar as his wife, and she bears a son, Ishmael, at age 86. This was not God's outward will for him to do, this was not what he was called to do. Yet now Abram has a son, and there's great domestic unrest going on. Sarah hates this now. She hates the arrangement. She and Hagar are at odds. Thirteen years go by before we come to the passage I just read this morning. Now he's 99, and Sarah is, 90, is 89. 13-year-old son that Abram has is no doubt met a lot of the needs he had in his life to be a father. I mean, imagine his name is, was Abram which means exalted father. Imagine the laughs people had about exalted father, 99-year-old with no, or at least 89-year-old with no kids. Now he's got one son, so he has a son. But there's great unrest in his household when we come to Genesis 17. 22 years since he first was called by God 
out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. Many ups and downs we've seen with Abram. Weak faith, strong faith, but a regularly renewed faith as God continues to renew his commitment to bring him a seed, the seed who eventually will bless the nations, the seed who will be the Messiah. Failures and victories on the part of Abram. God's faithful commitment, though, always stays steady. His covenant promises never wane. Ups and downs, steps forward, steps back. God's steadfast devotion to his own word and this promise he makes to Abram never loses its momentum, even if it seems like it's slowing down. Now in Genesis 17, we have the last of the Abrahamic covenant passages. And here, God once again renews his call to Abram, and he compels Abram to follow with a commitment to walk with him. Walk blamelessly, Abram. Walk with me. I had a hard time figuring out what to entitle this sermon. Genesis 17 isn't a sermon that people generally pick to preach especially the last, half of the, cha- the last half of the section I read already. That'll create all sorts of good lunch discussions at tables. But this is the Word of God, so we walk through it. We see how powerful it is, and I think there's something we would miss if we're not careful. There is an underlying pattern about the Christian life that starts to display itself even in the life of the patriarchs up through Israel and into the New Testament. It's something that's different than what our modern American evangelical experience may be. We tend to accent experience as modern American evangelicals. I remember that day I believed in Jesus and I walked the aisle or I filled out the card or I, tra- I prayed to receive Jesus. And we, we go back to that day every time there's an issue and we find that that's a, that's a tough thing to do because then we start wondering about that experience itself. And it's based on an experience, a conversion experience. But what the scripture actually lays out for us is a, a covenantal approach to growth in God's grace. That most typically God will place you in a family or in a sphere of parents who know Christ for all their uh, infirmities and sinfulness and such and whatever your home looked like. Almost everyone here, if I asked you to raise your hands, how many people um, were exposed to Christianity in your home, most of you would say that that's how you came to know Christ. That's the typical way most people come to know Christ. It's true he reaches beyond our walls through missions and evangelism and outreach and new people come to Christ and new covenant families are formed. But it's still most normally, most commonly through God saving parents and then parents dedicating or noting that this covenant is for them and their children, just as it's said here, and they profess the gospel to their children. The children grow up hearing the gospel, believing that Jesus is their Savior, and God gives us signs and seals along the way to assure us this is the truth, and we're confronted on a regular basis with the gospel. We don't know one specific time, but we know we believe this, and every time we come to the Lord's house and the Lord's day, we're reassured of this, and he gives us means of grace that remind us of this truth, and there's a steadiness to it. It's not as spectacular, it's not as experiential, but it's deeper, and it and it's, gives us a stability, a sense of there's God that we know has reached to us this way with this great grace and we acknowledge it regularly. I almost never said uh, to my children, um, do you remember the day that you received Jesus? I asked them that day, do you believe in Jesus? Do you rest in Christ? Because he is your savior. He's who you can trust in. He's the only one you can trust in. And that's a regular message personally and corporately. And that's what we see on display. God's telling Abram how he should look at his faith and how it should be propagated is he goes forward, and we see it unfold in the Old Testament with even greater power in the New Testament. Christ, who is altogether forecasted here, comes and fulfills what he is, he is forecasted to come and do. 
We have a picture here of how God generally fulfills his promise. It's starting to unfold in Abraham's life. Let's look at it together. If you see the first two verses with me, you'll notice he's calling again to Abram. After some years, 13 years have gone by since he had um, a word with Abram in the person, in person. He appears to Abram, and you know that there had to have been lots of strife that had been developing over the years with Ishmael, no other son coming to Sarai. Um, I'm sure Sarai had given up in her mind and heart about the possibility of having her own child. And Abram was probably busy with the son he had. And there's this lull in the action, you might say, the revelation action anyways. And then we come to verse 1, 13 years after chapter 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, and notice the address God makes. It's the first time he uses this title for himself with Abram. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Let's spend some time considering this phrase. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. I am God Almighty. That means I'm the God who can do whatever he says he can do. It's El Shaddai. El meaning God. Shaddai, it relates to the mountains and the impassibility of mountains. You can't get by mountains and you can't move mountains. In antiquity, if you were traveling and trying to uh, pioneer somewhere, you would get to the mountains and you couldn't go past them. They're too powerful to get by. You were stopped in your tracks. El Shaddai means God cannot be overcome the all-powerful one. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, the God who can do anything. So if I say that a 99-year-old man can father a child and an 89-year-old woman can have a baby, then they can. And these promises I've been telling you, Abram, are about to happen. El Shaddai is talking to you, God the Almighty. And this is the designation that we should keep close to our minds and hearts, that he is the all-powerful one in our lives. He can overcome any of your inadequacies, any of my inadequacies. Our weaknesses are more than made up for by God Almighty. He's able to keep his great and precious promises because he's God Almighty. He's able to do what he says he'll do in his word because he's God Almighty. He's able to protect us from ultimate harm because he is God Almighty. God could take weak, frail, stumbling believers and make us fruitful because he is God Almighty, just like he did with Abram. A renewed covenant calling from El Shaddai, God Almighty. But notice what he then requires of Abram. We should not miss that to this point, all we've been hearing of these covenant um, expressions on God's part, Genesis 12, 15, now 17, is all that God is going to do, what he's doing, how he's going to do it. And now he's saying, in light of all this, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, to be clear, he's not changing or adding terms to the covenant. Now, you have to now walk a certain way and be perfect so that you can keep what I've been promising and been doing for the last 22 years in revelation to you. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's doing. He's calling Abram to walk close with him, to be intimate with him. Things are about to ramp up insofar as the covenant being fulfilled. Walk closely with me and don't waver in your faith, Abram. Trust in me. Trust in what I'm saying. God Almighty is saying this to you. Walk before me means open your life to every moment with God. Now, here's the thing. God sees every moment of your life. But you acknowledging, me acknowledging that God sees it and cares about it all changes the way we 
evaluate our actions, when we really stop to think that God's watching me with my friends, He's watching me at work, He's watching me at study, He's watching me when I'm in private, when, he know, when we as Christians know that, because we're forgiven by Christ, uh, it does open us up to a new level of even holiness as God calls us to walk with Him. He's already said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now walk with me. Be blameless. Walk transparently before God. Walk knowing that we are in His view. Candlish, who is the Scottish Presbyterian commentator, said it this way, to walk before God is to walk or live as in his sight, and under his special inspection, to feel his open and unslumbering eye ever upon us. And I know that's scary to some degree. We don't want God to know everything that we think and say and do, but he does. And in Christ, we have that protection, and he's saying to Abram, it's time to cognitively now, Abram, walk with me, be blameless, follow me, stay close to me, be perfect. What does that mean? How can we be perfect? Well, be blameless. This doesn't mean be absolutely perfect in your actions. It's referring to something specific to the context, and this is walking with him. Don't waver in your trust. Again, Candlish said so well, be perfect, not in any high or strange accomplishment, but in that which a little child is the best specimen of perfection, a picture as a little child in simply believing, in following, trusting, confiding. Be perfect in walking before me as a child may walk under the eye of parental watchfulness and love. That is perfection. That's what he's talking about. The perfection of walking before a father. No unbelief is there, no selfishness, no reserve, no feeling of a separate interest, so secret consciousness of a double mind, or no secret consciousness of a double mind. This reminds me um, of a, a picture in my mind when my boys were young and very, very... Uh, uh, energetic and hard to contain, and that was fine in areas where there weren't a lot of people, but we were at the Johnson County Fair some years ago going to the Demolition Derby, one of the highest points of American culture, and there we were. I was tasked to take two of them. I don't remember which two. I'm going to guess it was AJ and Jordan just because I remember their heads, and you'll know what I mean by this. We were, I was supposed to go across to get them some kind of snack before the Derby started because they were not having sitting there waiting for it to start. You got to get your seats early for this. And so I take off with them and there are crowds of people everywhere and everyone seems big and I'm watching the two boys. I know I got one job, basically keep them safe and get them a snack. Two jobs, get, keep them safe and, and get them a snack. So as I'm walking across, I immediately feel them starting to want to go one way or the other and I can watch their heads, the back of their heads and their one's going this way and I can't. So I grab one of my head like this and one head like this and I bring them close to me, say, stay with me, stay close to me. And if you can't feel me, then you're too far away. And so they're still trying to get away or look around. Not really get away. They just wanted to see what else was going on. And as we're walking through the crowd, it, was, it seemed like a long crowd. They stayed with me, but they were moving. They were jiggling around, but they stayed with me. And they knew I was going to keep them safe. That's the Christian life. That's you and God. You're wanting to go, but stay, walk with me and be blameless. Trust me that I will guide you where you need to go. I am God Almighty. That's what he's saying. That's the message here for every believer but specifically now to Abram. Now look at verse 3 and verse 4. You'll see how the renewal of the covenant happens again. We've seen this multiple times. We'll see it again in short form throughout the Old Testament, and then the same kind of language is used in the New, but only with Christ as having fulfilled it all. This covenant commitment on the part of God. I love Abram's right response to seeing and hearing from God. Verse 3. God says, Abram, walk with me. Verse 3. Abram fell on his face. 
That's okay. That's a humble response to seeing and hearing God. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You'll notice he interchanges past, present, and future references to the covenant. My covenant will be, now my covenant is with you. And it will be in the future. It'll speak of some outcome of the covenant. God speaks in all the tenses this way because to God Almighty, his will is accomplished. It's as good as accomplished. And so we'll refer to it in different ways when he's talking to Abram, when we're reading it. But you can be sure his part is always accomplished. The issue is how much of the blessings will we experience as we live in light of those covenant promises. The big picture of what God does covenantally will never be thwarted. But individually, as a human experience, as we obey God, we tap into those blessings that come from this covenant protection God gives us. So there's real-life application going on. All the while, the end, end is determined. God's going to work this out because he's got this plan for glory for himself and the good of his people. But there's specific things we're called to do along the way. This is part of God's working these things out. And so this covenant commitment comes again from God saying, Remember, Abram. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God commits once again to what he's promised to do. And notice what he then does. He gives Abraham assistance. He gives them two particular pieces of assistance. One, he renames him, which don't undersell that. That's powerful when you change a person's name to be what you will be by God's power. And then he gives him a sign, the sign of circumcision, which to us seems weird this day and age, understandable, but it'll make more sense as we... uh, understand it in its context. So he gives Abram two uh, tangible things. I'm going to give you a new name that you'll be referred to, and every time the name is uttered, you'll remember my promise. And I'm going to give you a sign that through the generations, it will be a sign about what my ultimate goal is in bringing a seed. So he gives him more assistance to his faith. That's the point. He gives more, the same covenant, more assistance as it goes and it grows. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he goes from exalted father, who doesn't even have but one child now, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And this is growing already, these promises of this covenant name that he gives him, Abraham. And he also will rename Sarai in just a little bit, or rename Jacob later. Uh, name giving in the ancient Near East was a powerful exercise, and it would come from like a judge or a king would give you a name on the basis of something you did. You won a battle for me, I rename you something. And I can do that because I'm sovereign as a king. So it, it speaks to an attribute, it speaks to an accomplishment. When God Almighty does this, when El Shaddai does this with Abram, he's forecasting, he's prophesying that this will be who you are, Abraham. So now as you walk through your life, your name will be uttered, a father of a multitude. At 99 with a 13-year-old son, I'm going to call you a father of a multitude because God can do this. This is a powerful thing to change his name. This changes his identity. This changes who he is and what he does. It says in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Not only like before, I'll make of you a great nation. Now I'll make a multitude of nations. Ishmael will have nations too. I'll make a multitude of nations. And in addition to this, in addition to making you nations, I'm going to have kings come from you. You'll be given a great progeny, and Saul will come from you. David will come from you. Josiah will come from you. Hezekiah will come from you. 
The King of kings and the Lord of lords will come from you, 99-year-old Abram, with a 13-year-old son. Jesus will come, the King of all kings, from you. By the way, this is big. Abraham's story is big. But your story is big, too. Because your identity is no longer in whatever your vocation is, whatever your function in life is. Your identity is primarily in Christ. You've been given a new identity. That's the identity that determines everything else. All the value about everything else that you are, that God calls you to be and gifted you to do, is seen through that identity. Just like Abraham would be a name that would forever point him in the direction that he was ordained to be, so you also in Christ have a new identity. Every one of us, as diverse as we are in all our interests, in abilities and gifts, in accomplishments, in trials and struggles, it says in Galatians 2.20, a book that's largely trying to explain to people the Abrahamic faith in terms of Christ's Christ fulfillment, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Can you see Abraham saying, I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live. I live by the promises of God now. In Galatians for, 2 for us, it is no longer I who live, but, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This isn't a, a fringe doctrine, this identity point. It drives everything. Your identity in Christ gives you your purpose. It gives you clarity about your decision-making, your actions. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says it, says it so clearly this way, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life isn't the next accomplishment you think you're supposed to make in this world. This world will fade and pass. Your abilities will diminish. Your stuff will rust. But who you are in Christ, that's eternal. That's part of the everlasting covenant. That's part of what really matters. And that should make a difference in all the stuff that rusts, in all the stuff that will diminish. In Ephesians 2, verse 5 and 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in him, in Christ Jesus. So Abraham gets this new identity by his name. You have received a new identity by being placed in Christ. Notice the inheritance that Abraham is once again reassured concerning. Verse 7 and verse 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. For how long? Throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant. It'll be a covenant that never ends. This is a commitment I'm making to you and your progeny, Abraham. And it will never end. To do what? To be God to you and your offspring after you. This covenant favor shown by God will not only be conferred on Abraham, but there will be many who benefit from, from this promise, this inheritance, this godly inheritance. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and recall or uh, bring to your attention this theme of seed again. Notice in verse 7, you see offspring multiple times mentioned, offspring, offspring. We'll see it several times in the passage. This can also be translated from uh, seed is the other word you'll see in other translations. Um, and the seed here is important, and it's particular, and Paul helps us. We wouldn't gather this up front if it weren't for Paul's help here later through Christ. The seed theme has come through Genesis 3, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the seed who would be the second Adam, the seed who would be our Messiah, the seed that God preserved through Noah and the flood, 
the seed that God identified as coming through Shem. He starts to narrow down from Noah to Shem. And then he identifies the seed, the offspring, coming from Abraham. That's where we are now. He's narrowing down so we know where the Messiah will come, or whom the Messiah will come from. So it's not really about Abraham's ethnic family here, his actual literal progeny has something else forecasted. It's true that from his literal self will come eventually the Messiah. But the Messiah will be the Savior of the world for all those who rest upon him. This is how he's the father of all the faithful. Those who trust in Christ are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. So Paul, looking at offspring and seed, says in in Galatians 3, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings. The word offspring can be taken here singularly to your offspring, a group or plural, or it could be just one, like we're seeing Paul say. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. The point is, ultimately, Abraham's offspring is Jesus. He's the one who fulfills all of this. And anyone who's in him, they're sons and daughters of Abraham. It won't just be his ethnicity that numbers as many as the stars. It will be those who by faith in his seed, Christ, they will be numbered. And this is how the sons and daughters of Abraham fulfill the prophecy. There will be as many as there are grains of sand. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8 of our passage. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. We already know by now that what God is starting to unfold with Abraham is a picture of eternal reality. And Abram knew this too. He's 99. He doesn't even have, he's got a 13-year-old kid. He's still waiting for this child of promise. He doesn't even own a piece of land. He has no deed for anything in the promised land yet. He may be there, but he doesn't own any of it yet. In fact, he never gets to own any of it, except the spot he got buried in. He knows that what's really being promised is way greater than just peace of Palestine. It says in Hebrews 11, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Not the stuff that comes and goes as nations come and go, but I'm looking for something eternal, Abram's saying, and he knows that God's going give it, to give it to him. He's looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. <clears throat> Back to verse 8. And I will God, I, God says to him, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's picturing the ultimate eternal state, the resurrected reality. That's what he has Abram looking forward to. Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now look at verse 9 through 14, and you'll see this sign given. He was given a new name. Now he's given a sign, a covenant sign, which is also basically works as a seal as well, an assurance that God's promise is true, that what God has declared is true. Back in verse 2, it says, I will make my covenant between me and you. Then he says in verse 9, to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. So he'll make his covenant, then he says, you shall keep my covenant. What's his covenant here? What is he talking to specifically here? Obviously, it's related to his greater covenant of grace, but what in particular is he calling on Abraham for? As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Okay, what shall they do throughout the generations? 
Well, verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So he's giving him a sign, a particular sign. Again, it's foreign to us in our thinking, but in these days it made sense. It was something that was practiced beyond Israel. But normally when circumcision was practiced, it happened when people, when boys became men. It was like a rite of passage that spoke something about their ability to be fertile, that their house would continue, that their name would continue. And it was believed, and there's some proof to this, that there was a hygienic purpose for this as well that helped with fertility in those days. And so there would be nations that would do this. But there's something different here about the way Israel is applying it. God is having them apply it in their first generation, the ones who first come to know it, Abraham and those in his household. But then he's saying, going forward, apply this sign to all male babies as well. So that there will always be a sign of my promise that I am doing that no one could make happen themselves. It's passive. It happens passively. Mark them with this sign that's a promise about ultimately the seed I will bring from your house. Ultimately, it's a sign of Christ's coming. But it relates to a devotion that will be with them always, a sign, an outward sign of an inward reality. That's what it is. Verse 11, why this particular sign? Look as it unfolds. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He was eight days old among you, shall be circumcised. This rite or ritual symbolized progeny. It had to do with the seed. That's why this was formulated the way it is. And it's limited in its, in its application. Abraham and his house would receive this sign in all those who would come within their house afterwards. Verse 12, the second part. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be, surely be circumcised. If they come into your covenant headship, if they come under your umbrella, so to speak, then they must be marked this way as well. It's not speaking to them individually being a believer themselves, but it's the sign of what, where belief should lie in the coming seed, in God providing the one who would come. It's, it preaches the gospel to anyone who considers what the sign means. It says further, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant, a way to always declare what it is that God has promised. This has rightly been called the sacrament of circumcision. And we catch a glimpse of what a sacrament is here, and we should spend just a little time considering it. I understand the complexity of it. That's the nature of this passage. Paul says in Romans, talking about Abraham in the sign of circumcision, Paul said he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So notice right away, in a sacrament, you have a couple things happening. You have righteousness, and you have the word seal applied. You have faith. What are these, all these words used to describe circumcision here in Romans? I'll continue, and then we'll come back to consider and analyze that. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So it's going to be by faith. That's how Abram was saved, by faith in God's promise to send a Savior. Um, That's still how you're saved, but he's going to give a sign that will draw people into and engage people into remembering and believing on what God has promised, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had 
before he was circumcised. The sacraments were never given to save. They were given to bolster people's faith in the salvation that God provided. That's the truth of any, any sacrament. Sacrament does not save you. It does not make God love you more. God gives it to us as a declaration of his commitment to save. It's a declaration of what God will do, not what we will do or have done. It's a statement of God's sovereign work in fulfilling the covenant. And here we have that on display with this sign of circumcision that is given. When you think of the sacraments of the New Testament that have been fulfilled because Christ has come, you have circumcision that becomes baptism. You have the Passover, which becomes the Lord's Supper. You have circumcision, which looks ahead to the cleansing that will come through the seed. You have baptism that looks back upon the cleansing work of Christ that was finished at the cross. And we are identified with God's cleansing in both cases. In the Passover, you have the looking forward to uh, God. Well, you have the looking back at the Passover itself, which was a looking forward to how God would bring the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, on us so that the spirit of judgment, God's just judgment would pass over us because of Christ. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, I am the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Look to me, and the table represents what's been done for you. And these build our faith. They don't save us, they build our faith. They are signs of what God has done, and they are seals of authenticity because God says so. It's like a notary putting a stamp on it. This is what I say, this will do. This is what we have on display in the sacraments, and we get our first real glimpse of it here in Genesis 17 with the sacrament of circumcision. What is a sacrament? Our catechism does a great job of helping us see the full biblical teaching on this. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible, you can, you can taste, touch, feel, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. They're sensible in that you can, you can feel them, you can engage them, but they're also signs. They represent something. They're symbols of something. They're seals where they bond something. They confirm the, le- the legitimacy of it. Our confession says that sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits, to confirm our interest in him. Also, to put a visible difference between those who belong unto the church and those who belong to the rest of the world. This is a continuing truth that we see develop even more as the Bible unfolds and as Christ does his work. And it's so important in the Old Testament times. It's so important that people obey what God says here, that in verse 14 of our passage, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will save you. I will give you an eternal rest. I will give you this and I will give you that and I will be your God. Mark yourself with the sign of the covenant. No, I won't. Then you're not in me. If you you don't see this, then you... So that's what he's telling them in this stage of Revelation history. This is one of the reasons, one of the main arguments, you might say, from the Presbyterian perspective of why we apply baptism to our babies. Not because we're saying they're saved. We're saying that God makes a declaration about how salvation happens, and we as Christians who believe this ought to apply it to our covenant children. They're not little pagans. 
They're born into the covenant. By God's grace, he put your children here where they'll only ever hear the gospel. And you'll know the gospel. And you'll never let a day go by that your child doesn't know the gospel. I don't know any parent, even one who doesn't think you should apply baptism as a baby, I don't know any parent who doesn't constantly tell their children what the gospel is, how they must rest in Christ. You have to trust in Christ. From the time I, well, before they can understand what I was saying, before I go, they go to bed, I'd say trust in Jesus, rest in Christ. I still tell them at 23 years old. That's still what I tell them. That's the same message. It never changes. In fact, this is what I'm talking about when you see the covenantal approach to the family. You have God declaring salvation. If you believe salvation, it's because he's given you eyes to see it as a parent. So you believe it, and you, you believe, and it's counted you as righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. So what do you do next? Well, I apply the sign to my child. The sign will point my child to the fact they need to trust in Christ, and I'll be telling them they need to trust in Christ. They'll be hearing it from the Word. They'll know it from the sacrament. Then they'll see on a regular basis the body of Christ partaking in the sacrament that says what? That your salvation is in the finished work of Christ. It never stops. The, the proclamation of the gospel is every day, all the time for Christians. That's the covenant faith. Just as it unfolds in the Old Testament, God says, um, write it on your, uh, your eyelids and on your doorposts and on everything. Everything I've said about the gospel, tell, say it over and over and over again. That's the Christian life. That's the family Christian life. And we don't presume, but we can be sure that God will be doing a work in our families. And we look to hear a sound profession from our children who can say clearly, yes, I rest in Christ. But we don't think they're pagans until that moment. We think that God's promises matter. And so we walk with God humbly and we're ups and we're downs and all the stuff that's true the way Abraham lived is true for our children too. And it's not spectacular, but it's stable. And in the end, we fall back on what is true. God has accomplished salvation in Christ. Do you believe on him? That's different from creating an experience that's based on someone realizing they needed Jesus as their Savior and prayed to receive him into their heart. That's not lingo the Bible uses. That's, that's American individual choice language about how I've got to have an experience to bank on. The problem with that is when the troubles come, the ups and the downs come, did I really believe back then? Did I really have that experience? Was that experience real? Don't worry about experiences. Forget the experiences. It doesn't matter when you pray to receive Jesus. Right now, do you know you're a sinner? Do you know the only way you could be right with God is to rest in Christ? That's what matters. That's covenantal language. That's the language I believe the scripture lays out as it unfolds with even more clarity about who Christ is. And there should be not any person here, no matter how old you are, that is sick of hearing me talk about the gospel. And there should be every young person on the edge of your seat wondering how you can be right with Christ. And knock off the stuff you're doing if you're doing something you shouldn't. And walk blameless. Walk with me, God says to you. Walk blameless. Walk with me. I think this is what we'll see unfold in the lives of the patriarchs. You'll see it happen so imperfectly along the way, leading up finally to Christ when he shines so brightly. And everything will point to him. Uh, pointing forward to him up to this point and now looking back at him with this great, great love we have for his beauty in all that he has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the covenant of grace, for your covenantal commitment to us that unfolds throughout the scriptures. I thank you for the covenant revelation that we read here with Abraham, this revelation about a sacrament that you give, something that has a, a special significance in the life of a believer and believers who follow after. Lord, I pray now as we even participate in one of these sacraments, the Lord's Supper, that we would be uh, bolstered in our faith, that we would be refreshed in our faith,
that we would not look back and hang on to an experience, but we would look now unto Christ and rest in Him wholly. pray this in His name. Amen.